Hey, I'm Taylor Dorson, and this is the Professional Technical Interviewee. Technical interviews are hard, and every company does them differently. On this show, I interview engineering leaders to see what they look for in technical candidates, and then they perform a real technical interview with me. I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for being here. How are you? Doing good. It's a beautiful day in Denver, Colorado today. So I love it. A little brisk. It's winter, right? Yeah, there you go. Well, what is it? 300 plus days of sunshine, right? You can't be too upset with them. It, it's sunny today, so yeah. but no snow on the ground and the holidays are here. So I'm going, why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> cool. Well, to introduce you, Chris, uh, you are a managing partner at Lion Cube. Uh, Lion Cube focuses, it's a, it's a professional services company focused primarily on um, FinOps, DevOps, uh, CloudWork, and Kubernetes specifically. Anything else I missed or anything else you want to plug? Uh, I'm a published author, uh, recently started my own podcast like you, uh, the FinOps show. Cool. So we're bringing on guests about FinOps. Um, you know, my book, uh, Core Kubernetes, is available through Manning Publishing, you know, all the usual bookstores. Yeah. So. Well, I, I'll put you on the spot here because I, um, I didn't give you this one ahead of time. But a lot of folks, you know, I think people are coming around. Most people generally know what DevOps is now. Most mm-hmm. people have an idea what cloud is, even Kubernetes. Um, but FinOps might be a new one for folks. Yeah. Uh, could you just give us a little, maybe the the... A um, couple minute version of what is FinOps and why is it important to, to any given company? So uh, I'll give you the background and incentive of why. Uh, AWS approximately is a $100 billion company per year inside of Amazon. So they don't release the numbers. So that's uh, estimates by analysts. With If you talk to architects, cloud architects, you know, software developers, et cetera, et cetera, they would estimate that 20 to 30% of that spend, $100 billion, is just plain waste. We're not talking about optimizing for cloud. We're not talking about rewriting code. We're talking about yeah, just spending too much money. So FinOps is a practice that brings together data, engineering practices, culture change, in order for you to address cost overruns. And it allows you to look at implementing a culture of uh, optimization within the cloud. Uh, You know, let's start shutting off dev at night. Let's turn off the VMs we don't need. You know, that database over there that's costing us 10 grand a month that that there were no network calls to last month. Why is that still on? So it's, there's a FinOps organization uh, that's laid out a lot of different standards. There's a couple of good books around it. It's a fairly new uh, type of practice and idea. All the cloud companies are spinning up internal FinOps organizations, especially with what's going on with the economy today. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I heard of some of that, but more so in the sense of it's one person <laughs> at a company saying, hey, we should think about this, right? <laughs> Instead it, of- it, it often is a FinOps guru, right? But it's more than that because you're a developer yourself, right? And you're the person that can, in my opinion, make the most impact. If you're given enough time in a sprint to say, okay, every other month or every fourth week, we're going to spend two or three days on just optimizing. 
know, where can we reduce this? Is this too much? Let's look at some new reporting software to look at requests going in on certain, well, maybe we have XYZ here, XYZ there. There's a lot of great tools out there, but, you know, and we're partners with folks that do some Kubernetes stuff, KubeCost, I'll throw that out there. But you get great dashboards. You got a person internally that's saying, hey, let's do this. But if the culture doesn't support it, it it doesn't go anywhere. It's not just a single FinOps person. That person helps, uh, you know, bring in the culture, bring in the changes, bring in the dashboards, drive that type of methodology. And, you know, larger companies, it's a small group or a larger group of people to look at it. But it's like, do you know what your company's cloud bill is? No. Not to put you on the spot. No. Well, if you talk to any FinOps individual, you should know. You should know how much money per month is being spent. You should be told if you release a new product and expenditures go up 30%, mm. the, your CFO should be able to look at, okay, we released this new product. Sales are at this. Predicted sales in six months are going to be here. So yeah, the, the IT expenditure that we have makes sense. CFOs, C, CEOs, and CTOs should be able to look at the numbers it should, and this is utopia, right? But for instance, there's a very large client that KubeCost has where they have everything going back to business intelligence. So they have multiple different software projects, products, really large client. They can tell you for this product, how much IT costs are mm. and how much sales were. Last time I checked, that's how you do business. You actually understand the cost. And it gets more tricky when you have multiple products, you have multiple microservices, you've got network connections in the cloud. You know, it gets, it gets interesting really fast. Uh, and it's non-trivial. But, you know, um, and we're not talking like major corporations, uh, FinOps groups are saving 40 to 50 to $60 million a year, mm. you know, within the first year or two that they're there. Uh, you know, within, I would say if you have a Kubernetes cluster and you haven't actually looked at it and measured it, you've got cost overruns of 20 to 30 to even 50%. You're over-provisioned. Wow. You know, engineers don't want to wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning, right? So we, in a weird way, are incentivized to over-provision. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's rare you're going to get an email saying, hey, we're, we're, We've got too like we've got too much availability on this service, right? Uh, but if something goes down, you're going to hear about it, right? So it's interesting. Exactly. It's really interesting. Exactly. And it, you're you're never going to get an email that you have too much availability unless you've got software in place that spits you a Slack message saying, "Hey, you're at forty percent optimization on this XYZ service. Go take yeah. a look at it." Yeah. It's really interesting. So before I was an engineer, I was a, a recruiter for many years and ran a, a recruiting office. And so you know, the weird part about this transition for me was I'm so used to seeing how does my revenue, my team's revenue mm-hmm. directly translate to, to the business, right? Mm-hmm. Versus being an engineer where that, that line is, you know, I, 
I had a dollar amount, right? <laughs> of mm-hmm. What our costs were and, and what our revenue was. Um, and now it's a little, a little bit um, harder to tell, okay, exactly what value do I bring, right? That's really interesting for someone that, that is, um, that wants to have an eye on that moving into FinOps might be a, a way to be like, okay, I can show you exactly how we're able to save you money, right? And a, a much clearer picture of, of how a company impacts or how a yeah. team impacts the bottom line. And it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, engineers aren't accountants. They aren't necessarily business people. But what happens if you tell an engineer that this service is costing $50,000 a month? Hopefully they say, okay, is it worth that, right? But wouldn't you think that they would go, okay, if we do this, it might cost less. Yeah, sure. We're problem solvers. And frankly, optimization is a really interesting problem to solve. You know, so we're not talking about something that engineers don't enjoy. We're talking that they don't have the data, they don't have the time, they don't have the direction, mm-hmm. we don't have the culture in order to do it. And it's and and let's just throw this out there: everybody does it, sure. um, unless you are a company with a long history of FinOps, which is four or five years in this industry. You have waste, and even those companies have waste. But we walk into a client. We're like, why is this service on? It's not even configured. Well, somebody <laughs> did this button yeah. pushed. You can do this with bare metal as well. You know, you can get more creative in terms of cost savings, uh, retiring hardware if you have too much, bringing in new specialized hardware. So it's all you can measure it. But but your point in other business divisions, budget is like there seen you know okay i have this much marketing budget and admittedly it has that as well at the upper levels but they don't typically have this microservice is Mm. costing us too much you know somebody needs to take a look at these sql queries somebody needs to take a look at this database that's attached to this microservice because it's got three-year-old data in it do we really need that data in it right yeah yeah, that's really interesting. Well, thank, thank you for that overview because that's a big eye opening for for myself and probably a lot of people who haven't um, dove into that space before. Aside from um, FinOps, uh, can you share a little bit about um, LionCube and and your yeah. team and your role over there? Yeah, like I said, I'm one of the founders, one of the managing partners. We help clients primarily out with uh, day zero, day one, day two operations with Kubernetes. Either we're helping out folks implementing operators or they just need more staffing or, you know, they've got architectural questions with Kubernetes. We've got some folks we meet with, you know, on, a, you know, just every other week, one of our engineers gets on the phone and talks about architecture. So we, we help our clients in different ways. Uh, we've been in consulting since 1999. LineCube's just a rebranding uh, focused towards Kubernetes. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And can you share a little bit about your pathway into technology? Did you go the traditional computer science route or, or what does it look sort like? Sort of. <laughs> uh, so started off uh, in college working on electrical computer engineering. Mm-hmm. So it's a double E major. Dropped out of that when it was the dot-com time period. So folded into a startup really cut my teeth around that. Then I moved in consulting. So I've been in consulting for, you know, since I would say 1998-ish. Oh, wow. And, you know, worked with Perl, worked with multiple different languages. I actually started in IT, building computers, building 
like literally one of the first jobs I had was we ordered parts for 30 PCs, put them all together, you know, got the PC under the desk of each of the individuals, saved the company a bunch of money, as well as got really, really high-end PCs for them. You know, they were working on digital signal processing with sound cards back in the day. So that's where I started in IT, got into software for a long time, management, sales of a company, you know, enterprise, uh, leading that or this organization. And also we flipped into DevOps once it became kind of the darling of the industry. From there, segued into Kubernetes, of course. Uh, been working on the cloud, off the cloud. So uh, I have I have I have interviewed many folks, uh, both non-technical and technical over the years, and have probably some pretty strong opinions about current hiring practices and how effective they are. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about um, what, I guess, drew you to consulting and kind of keeps you in that, in that world? Because I know there's a lot of engineers who, I, I don't know if it's the traditional route, but a lot of folks go to some mm. type of product company or some type of um, services company and, you know, they kind of build out some product and maybe they go, oh, consulting might be interesting, but you always hear, oh, it's long hours. Oh, the clients are, who knows if the clients are going to be good or not. So I find that sometimes people will be in one or the other and then they never kind of cross over, right? Yeah. Um, can you just share a little bit about what you, drew you through that world? Because it seems like there's people who love it and stick with it a long time, right? It's mostly because of the diversity. We are not working on the same product for six months or a year. Uh, even if our contract runs that long, we have a very varied uh, background and lifestyle. We're called upon to not just be software engineers or DevOps engineers. We're, we become a trusted expert. People come to us, expect us to have answers. And you get a feel, you get a more experience, I'd say, being consultant. You're able to look at companies. You're able to figure out what type of company you might want to look for after you're being consultant very quickly. Because you get, you know, I would say within, you know, when I was billable, probably three or four different companies I worked with within a period of a year. There's not many folks that can say that. As well as, like I said, I counted last time the number of specialties we've had, and that's eight. Mm. So, and even now with Kubernetes, it's pretty, it's, it's more and more in the mainstream. Once stuff gets in the mainstream, you don't necessarily need consultants to do it. Sure. Or, you know, we, we don't work with consultants. Like, um, there's a lot of consultant companies which are doing staff augmentation at a level where they're junior and medium level engineers. We don't specialize in that. We have more medium high, uh, you know, senior engineers that will come in and help you. So it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, now, you know, not only am I involved in engineering, but I'm also an entrepreneur. So you figure out finance, you figure out sales, figure out how important sales is, mm. uh, because if a build, business isn't selling their, their product, which in our, our circumstances, our services, you, you just don't make it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so it sounds like there's there's a large variety of different types you can of things you can get into and, and work on. Um, but also you can become a subject matter expert in maybe an emerging field because that's a lot, mm -hmm. especially in a consulting company like like um, LionCube is is you're not just 
a body at a place, right? You're actually trying to be an expert and help someone implement something that they haven't done before. And then um, you get to learn the actual business, right? I do think that's that's a something that, again, either people love or they hate it, right? <laughs> like, oh, let me see a P&L, right? Like, let me actually understand sales. Let me see how do we run this business ourselves rather than just being a, a cog in the wheel. So that's interesting. Yep, absolutely. It's not for everyone. Uh, there's definitely more risk, especially as a as a entrepreneur. Uh, you you have to be less risk adverse uh, in order to to do this job nine to five, but it's it's very rewarding. Uh, you know, I have a story, and really, what drives me is being able to put food on people's tables. I like mm-hmm. being able to pay my staff a lot of money. They are, you know, they they're good financially. And, uh, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy the work. Uh, I've definitely, you know, recently pivoted and I would say it's not really a pivot recently, but doing more content creation, working in terms of education. Uh, I've got uh, Manning's taking a look at my second book right now. We'll see if they, they like my idea or not. I would say writing a book was one of the hardest things I did, but very rewarding. Sure. And it's definitely your best uh, business card. It's the most expensive business card you can get, but it's definitely your best business card. And people in the, you know, in the elevator today were like, what, you're an author? I'm like, yeah, it just means you're stubborn. It just means you don't stop after you've got an idea. And as an engineer, I figured out I couldn't write. Also, uh, you know, public speaking as well. I'm one of the crazy folks that isn't scared of public speaking. Sure. <laughs> I know, right? One of, one of the odd engineers. And as well as, you know, do, doing different content, whether it's blog posts, writing, social media, what have you. It's definitely some of the things I enjoy. And that's kind of what where I'm moving more towards. And we'll see over the next few years, you know, what, what my career leads to. But I've definitely, you know, it was, I was on the phone today with somebody and he was like, yeah, you know, it's nice with the hard work that I've put in. It's nice that people feel that I know what I'm talking about. Mm. So, yeah, it's going to be gratifying after in many years of being in the industry. And, and yeah, I've um, been I've been in a couple. I've been coding since I was 12. There you go. I'm now I'm now 48. Camp. Uh, <laughs> it's a couple of years. <laughs> Can you share? So you you said you you've been doing interviews recently. Do you do? Um, do you do staff augmentation for other companies? Mm-hmm. So if you're interviewing, are you interviewing to hire people for LionCube, which they're going to be on clients or be So they'll clients? be on client site. We don't do like direct hire staff augmentation, but I've hired different staff, whether it's salespeople, whether it's technical people uh, for all different types of roles. We've got folks that, of course, work for us directly. Uh, I've interviewed folks that work for partners that are going to go work on a client side of ours. So, yeah, I've been in interviewing software engineers and technical folks and IT engineers and project managers for, for a long time. Yeah. Many, many and years. What part of the interview process do you usually handle? Or I'm sure you've probably done a little bit of everything, but, but mm-hmm. nowadays, um, what do you typically focus on? Uh, technical interview side. You know, I'm one of the subject matter experts as well as just, it's kind of a litmus test in terms of if they're the type of personality you want to put in front of a client. As you mentioned, consulting, we are the subject matter experts. You have to, you can't necessarily be a person that wants to sit in front of your computer 
for eight hours a day and have very little human interaction. Sure. You're the type of people, you know, you're most likely the type of person that's going to be a leader within the organization without any political influence, which is actually a very interesting position to be in. You know, typically you have like capability, like you're managing somebody, you can, you know, encourage them with either a carrot or a stick. Uh, as a consultant, you can't. So it takes the, the right type of personality. And like I said, you, you really have to know your stuff. You can't come in to a client and say, oh, I don't know. You can sure. say that, but you have to say, hey, you know what? That's a really good question. I haven't come across that. I bet a couple of our other engineers have. Uh, let me go research that and get back to you tomorrow. Yeah. If it's, I don't know, I, it's, it's, I'll figure it out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is, I guess what you mentioned personality, um, because that, that's obviously very important. And um, there's a technical aspect. Is there anything else you're really evaluating for in those conversations and in those interviews? Um, your work ethic and values, you know, right. it's, are you, like you said, you have to go figure it out. Are you the type of person that can be unsupervised in consulting? You're probably some of the least unsupervised staff that exist. You're there, you take a set of tasks to do, you have a timeline to knock them out if you're delivering work, or you're embedded with the team and you, you just, you know, you're working that way. Technically, consultants aren't able to be managed if you are a, like a 1099 consultant with an IRS tax law, you actually can't be managed by a manager of your client's company, right? If somebody works as an employee to me if, or our organization, of course, they'll have managers that can manage them. But again, like some of our consultants, we won't talk to for four months. Mm. You know, we'll, we'll have the, hey, how are you doing on Slack? But, you know, I, uh, I've had consultants that worked for me. I've never met personally. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. I could, are you... I guess is the interview process the same for every role, or are you shifting it depending on the the skill set and the individual you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, some and mostly it's because we do non technical hiring as well. In terms of you know, if we have a PM or we're hiring somebody for our accounting department, of course, that's going to be a bit different. We try to go through the same things. Um, we've got a couple folks that do the primary interviews. I do a technical screening if. I've got a skill set that is uh, a little unique. Like say we hire a basal engineer, for instance. I'm one of the few people in our companies that understands basal really well. Mm. But, you know, pretty much I have the same set of questions, same set of chats. I, I read the, the resume beforehand, do a, you know, just a chit chat about their experience and then go into uh, a couple technical questions. You may be surprised, but technical interviews usually take 10 to 15 minutes for me. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Can you walk us through what that looks like? Because I, I, um, I, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but we're not planning on doing a technical half of this this podcast right. um, like we typically would because I think you're you're interested in interviewing folks um, in a different way rather than mm -hmm. a live, high-pressure coding environment, right? Right, right. So... Like I said, typically we walk through the resume, see what the see how their experience aligns with the client, and then I ask them some some specific questions. In the DevOps field, 
you know, one of the questions I can ask is how does google.com work? Hmm. When you hit enter on your keyboard, how does that work? Talk to me through the steps, talk to me through the systems that it works for. You're able to gauge the type of DevOps engineer they are, for instance, if they forget about the network, mm. they forget about the DNS resolution. They don't talk about how your browser, you know, your operating system has a cache of the DNS. They're like, well, it just, it goes and hits the HTTP server. Uh, no, no, no. There's a couple hops in between that. You know, we first got to get out of your Wi-Fi. You can tell the person when you ask that question is like, well, first there's an interrupt in your computer. I'm like, all right, now I've got a person that, that under, has, has been working with hardware in the past is going to talk me through the network. You find the person that's really heavy network doesn't understand the application side, talking about caching, talking about database replication, talking about you know, how we do a database that spans geos when you're talking about a huge system like Google. So there's all these things that are into such an easy question, right? Like how does google.com work? Yeah. You know, you'd think that's not that difficult a question. The other types of questions that I like to ask is what's wrong with something? Mm. You know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you do JavaScript, right? Yeah, primarily JavaScript. Yeah. So, so what's wrong with JavaScript? Uh, plenty. Um, I find that sometimes syntax and, um, I don't know, syntax a lot of times feels pretty silly in JavaScript and doesn't seem to be super coherent, uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, I guess this is less JavaScript and more front-end in general, but there's so many different things you need to support that often it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole sometimes if you've got, you know, if you, I'm building for Chrome most of the time and then I find out, oh, we've got users to use Firefox, we've got users to use mm -hmm. all these different types of things. And this may or may not be supported in any of those different web browsers, right? It's like, obviously those are the two things that feel the, the on a regular basis that I'm like frustrated with. Mm -hmm. Um, those are the big ones. I, and right, you work with React or Node? Uh, React. Um, I've used both. I've done full stack JavaScript, but um, now I'm using more React specifically. Okay. So you'll so as you get more senior and senior, you'll be able to say this is wrong with the language. Mm. All right. This this is eating my shorts way too many times. Sure. This is I've I've been up to two a.m. trying to find this type of bug over and over again. Dependency yeah. management is one of the things that is really just nasty with Java. Mm -hmm. Like sure. how do you know you have this library binding, right? And you've had it where you get a 1.8.2 library stuck in your web page somehow, and it overrides the 1.9.3 library that you should have been running. Sure, yeah. And there's no compile errors. Right. Yeah. So languages like Python, uh, languages like Terraform, for instance, you used to not be able to write a Terraform unit test. Recently, you can now, you know, thank goodness. You used to be able to with like Kitchen and doing some really intricate unit tests. I'm just like, you know, remind me what's the J unit unit test or JavaScript unit test library calls it. It's not JS. Uh, so Jest is the big yeah, one. Jest. Yeah, Jest, right. Uh, 
And then there's um, uh, what's the selenium? You're able yeah, to fire that up with, a, with yeah. a headless you know, web page and all that. You're able to test it. You know, you're able to test that this CSS is correct. Yeah. Like this, this, you know, this CSS that's been chewing on you for two days. And if it's a little fragile, so you want to make sure it tests correctly, it works. You, that button is rendering and it is on that page. With package management, it's messy. Uh, yeah. There's tools, actually, I mentioned Basil. Basil does a really good job of dependency management. And, and the thing is, is that dependency management between your system and test and your system and production, that's a really interesting. Containers help with that, of course, but really you need a good dependency management system. So yeah, yeah, it's, you know, job is the same way. Dependency management and class loading is just a nightmare. Uh, you know, yeah, at least with C++, you get stuff that links Sure. You know, and, and it breaks pretty hard usually, you know, knock on wood. But yeah, there's, there's just, you know, and the syntax drives me nuts. You're right. It's yeah. like you can, it's like Pearl. I don't know if you've ever seen Pearl, but I used to have a t-shirt that had a printout of Pearl. It was a block of text on the front of a t-shirt. And it basically printed out the version of Pearl. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I've seen of Pearl. I mean, not worked at it. It's basically a... 75 character um one-liner script to do something mm -hmm. pretty basic right and and god forbid you mess up one bit because <laughs> you'll never get it working right. again right and, and stuff like typescript react uh all of those have helped with the standardization of how javascript works but even still you can do something five ways sideways and you don't get a compiler and yeah. you 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 get this weird result. All of a sudden you're getting a three when you expected a five. Yeah. And you're kind of like, what? Yeah. So yeah, I I guess those are you're listing other ones, other bits of my gripes. When we don't use TypeScript now and previous job I used TypeScript, I was like, oh, why isn't this always a part of JavaScript, right? Like mm -hmm. it took 15 minutes for me to be like, okay, I got to do this extra stuff. And then I went, oh, that's half of the issues I used to run into are gone now, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, it's just, it's really interesting. Um, and we have these types of conversations. Let's go loop back to why. Yeah. I found somebody can talk about, I did this. Somebody can talk about, this is a good tool. Somebody mm -hmm. can talk about, this is how to do it. They've actually show experience if they say, this is bad. Mm. This is what's wrong with, you can't unit test Terraform. Uh, fortunately, no, you can't. But, you know, that's, that's the, the kickers, right? Is a certain level of experience is shown on this stuff. Mm. Um, you know, with Kubernetes, I know what questions to ask. You know, I know, hey, explain how Kubernetes networking works. You, you know, a lot of engineers know what a stateful set, know, know what a deployment is, know what a pod, you know, sorry, I'm going into API structures for Kubernetes if, if folks aren't, don't know that. But you've got to ask about the internals. You've got to ask about why do you not run a process as PID1, right? Talk to me about how Linux namespaces interact in a pod. Specifically, if you're looking for a very senior engineer, if you're looking for, you know, a medium level junior engineer, you ask them, hey, what's a stateful set used for? Talk about the different API objects so they have the familiarity with that.
The one thing that I found is it's very different from a person that's good at academics that have certifications, nothing wrong with certifications. I think it's a good thing. But if you look at a person that has certifications, they're more, I would say, of a person that understands and comprehends it Mm. rather than does it and can fix it. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it, it's, they're, they're a bit different. So I often see people that have like 30 certifications and I'm like, I bet you're a really good person, just not consulting. Cause that's not, you, you never know really what you're in head with consulting. Yeah. And, and I tell you having 30, 30 certifications, Hey, good on you. I don't have that, that in me to, to do that much book work. Sure. So. <laughs> that's really interesting. And I, I think, some people might say like, oh, these are tough questions. But if you're looking for um, senior level individuals and you know the exact domain, you're, you like what you basically what your client needs, right? Like you have a, a domain that someone needs to be, an, be able to answer um, to. I actually really like that Google question. Like I've heard that in the past for like general software engineering roles. And I think it's a fine question. But if you're specifically looking for someone who's going to have some type of cloud or, or DevOps, um, like face-to-face client work, you you hit the nail on the head, you're going to see exactly what do they know and what don't they know about this process, right? right? And when we're talking about a general software engineer, you might not touch every piece of that. But if you're a DevOps engineer, you should have uh, more of an in-depth knowledge of what's actually happening right? <laughs> when you click um, or when you hit send on, on Google, right? And, and the funny thing to, to relate to that is software engineers typically don't mess around with DNS. Mm-hmm. You talk to anybody that's done DevOps for a long time, IT for a long time, DNS, it's always DNS's fault because it's often DNS's fault. But I've had in DevOps engineers that I've interviewed that haven't talked about the fact when you go to google.com, there's a DNS lookup. And within google.com, it's actually a DNS lookup to a that's geographically tuned. Like if you ping google.com, it might not be the same IP address as when I ping it. Yeah. Right. And it goes to a different place. So it's important that I understand that. Now, an interesting thing with your point, I'll have a pretty good idea of what our client needs. But often our engineers don't, aren't that like at times, especially if they've been there a long time, they start moving on to other stuff that's maybe out of their wheelhouse or it's not what the client initially knew that they needed. And there's a saying that clients actually don't know what they need. Sure. You know, and there's some truth to that and some non-truth to that. You know, it depends on the on the type of relationship that we have with client. But often I don't know what what they're gonna be doing day in and day out. Uh, I don't understand exactly the internals of the project. What I understand is that we're hiring somebody that's gonna be senior for Kubernetes. So I understand, like I asked what's wrong with Kubernetes, right? And any engineer that's been waking up at two o'clock in the morning or it's been doing consulting for, you know, three or four years and Kubernetes can tell you, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, Hey, uh, if you accidentally use kube control 1.17 against a 1.22 server, you're going to have fun results. You know, it's, it's these little weirdness things that, you know, and it, and I don't expect them to know all the weirdness that I know, just be able to give an articulated answer to me. And it's very, it's a very unusual question in my mind. I don't think I've run into too many folks that specifically make sure that they ask negative questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. 
Well, it's an interesting way to interview because I think a lot of people are almost hesitant to talk about anything bad in an interview, right? Unless you think everyone's got that one stored answer for, tell me about a time, you know, you've had a bad experience in the workplace or something like that, right? right. But a lot of times you think, oh, I got to put everything in a positive light so I don't seem negative, right? So getting that type of question might be like, oh, interesting. Let me actually think about this and give you a real answer, right? Instead of some canned response <laughs> for the, they've had to, to interviews, right? Uh, could you share just the actual interview process? Sound like there's a conversation with you. Um, mm -hmm. That's the technical portion. Is there some type of recruiter call or something yeah, before so, that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a recruiter, uh, collects the resumes. Typically, there's one of our senior architects that screens them before me. I have a couple people. They'll give a write-up to the recruiter. Then from there, uh, we submit them to the client almost in parallel is when I screen them. Uh, often I screen them beforehand, but like I said, it's if they're hitting me, it's probably because they're really senior and they're it's and and or it's a technical specialty that I have. Often I'm not even part of this, you know, the hiring process. It just goes through a recruiter. They we've got pretty good job rec that we write up. And then it goes to one of our senior architects that might manage them, you know, might, they might be on their team. So, and often at times, you know, it depends on the client. Sometimes they want and talk and want to talk to the staff that we bring onto a contract. And often we're just telling them, Hey, this is the person they're perfect. We're bringing them on. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That's great. Yeah. I think the consulting world is always interesting, especially if it's, Oh, do I have to interview with both sides, right? Or not? Um, I guess mm -hmm. it just depends sometimes, right? It's funny. What's, what's really interesting, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. <laughs> is often I can't tell them what they're going to be doing. Sure. <laughs> they're often like, well, what am I doing? Well, we like, here's the, here's the statement of work, but yes. Or if it's staff augmentation, I don't necessarily know the intricacies of the project that we're on. All I know is they want this type of job rec and uh, this type of contractor to go work for them. And yeah. then they'll be able to explain uh, what the intricacies or what the project actually entails more. So that's often an interesting question, I guess. So, so what am I going to be working on? Well, get to talk to client about that one. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, one of the first guests on the podcast ever, uh, Jay Wingrow, um, had a story of when he, he was going to work for, I think it was apartments.com or something as a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, and he he said the interview with the actual company went terrible, right? <laughs> it was like, and no one liked me. It didn't seem like it was going well at all. I couldn't solve the problem really. Like I got something out. He's like, but at the end, they told me I was hired. So <laughs> he goes, well, I guess they liked me enough. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I think, I think that was nerves too. I think yeah, he was yeah. misreading the, the hostility because oftentimes people put up a hostility layer in order to see how you react. They will interrupt you uh, often at times to see if they actually, if you shut down and don't get in the, okay, I'm still going to keep on talking and yeah. I'm going to respect you enough that we're, I'm going to stop talking for a moment. Yeah. Uh, well, flipping the the table a bit, um, if you, in the past, when you've been in technical interviews yourself, how do you feel you, mm -hmm. you did? Do you feel like, oh, you, you smashed them all, uh, you hate them, <laughs> somewhere in between? Well, I'm in sales, uh, and I have the gift of gab, sure. and I understand how to bring needs out of, out of people. I understand to talk to people about, you know, their life outside of work. You know, ask them, you know, uh, you know, if they have family, ask them, 
you know, we're, we're emotional human beings, right? So uh, they're not going to make a decision on if they're going to hire you because you're good technically. They're going to make a decision that they're going to hire you because they like you. Sure. I hate to say it. I hate to say it, but, you know, a interview process is a sales process. Yeah. If you're able to articulate very easily what you've done in the past, if you're able to sometimes say, no, you know, you, what about this? I think you might have forgot about this. You know, this is actually one of the things that we're going to need to focus on. If you're able to bring out more than what the interviewers are asking, it's usually a good thing. So, yeah, my interview process is usually, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I'm not all that in a bag of chips. I've definitely been turned down in the past, but not often. So, and, sure. and as well as I'm going in through, I'm not applying the website. Right. I don't, I don't, I'm, you know, uh, I build a connection through LinkedIn, you know, I'll either shoot the LinkedIn uh, recruiter a message, you know, nowadays, or I will go in through a friend that knows a friend as, yeah. a, as a referral, you know, getting into the best jobs that you find aren't on the website or in the newspaper and the best jobs you find are through a friend. You know, networking is half, you know, half to three quarters the, uh, of the, the point of, of getting through it. Uh, good LinkedIn profile, good activity on GitHub, good activity on, uh, you know, blog or something, especially if you're really senior, all those add up, you know, a yeah. book, if you really want to be senior, really want to be a subject matter expert in the, in a field, write a book. You know, yeah. it took three years for me to do mine with, with, with Jay. Really the book exists because of Jay. Jay's far more technical, far more talented and engineer than I am. I'm, just a good mouthpiece at times, you know, I I know how to fix problems. I know what looks pretty. I know how to position a book that people will buy, but, you know, thank goodness I had him because he's, he's at a whole nother PhD level of amazingness than I am with Kubernetes. So, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I, I think I have been passed on or, proceeded um, into final stages or offers and technical interviews were like, I felt I was doing okay, but definitely trying to connect with the individual, actually asking questions, actually being interested, mm-hmm. right? Like I think got me a, you know, a, a check instead of a, eh, you know, like maybe I moved to a yes because of that. And it doesn't take a ton, right? Like it doesn't, you don't have to be the most charismatic person in the world to, mm-hmm. to cheese your way through interviews. You you just have to stand out a little bit, right? Like I think you want to make enough of an impression and a good impression that when someone thinks back like two days later, when they're trying to write, remember the feedback, cause they're in a feedback session, like, Oh yeah, that person actually, you know, I actually had a good conversation with them. Right. Or like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we connected about coffee or beer or whatever. It doesn't have to be some crazy thing, right? It just needs to be something that you're not just mm-hmm. one of many. Okay. Engineers they talk to. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And if you know the person you're talking with, research them before you walk in. Yeah. yeah. Look at their LinkedIn profile, connect with them on LinkedIn, see if they have Twitter, see what they tweet about, get to know the person, uh, call them by name, right? Taylor, you hear your name, mm-hmm. it's different, right? You use it a couple times in the interview. If you don't understand how to say their name, 
ask them how to pronounce it and have them teach you how to pronounce it. I would really appreciate that. There's a book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. It talks about that, um, not to argue. You know, you don't necessarily debate in, a, in an interview unless you're called on to debate. Sure. And even then, it's a little dicey, right? You're talking about the negative. Uh, it's and, and don't worry about it. Just be your authentic self. Don't mm-hmm. try to put on a, a fake story. It's going to come out, you know, otherwise. I have somebody that actually is stolen my resume talking about fake story been contacted by two different companies (laughs) like the linkedin profile is exactly the same it it doesn't have the fact that the book author is pre that but yeah it's 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 kind of funny that they found that this guy is interviewing with my resume don't do that like they just you'll get found out like they were going to troll him they were literally going to get on the call and troll him. They decided not to waste the time, but yeah, oh, interesting. because they contacted me that he was using my resume. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess a... it's, I, I guess it's a, you know, a little bit of a, a an honor to have somebody use your resume, <laughs> <laughs> but, but oh my goodness, you, you think you're going to get away with that? Yeah. You know? That's pretty wild. There was a pretty incredible Hacker News article a couple of months ago about something similar where someone, but the, the company um, reached out to them and then invited them to be on the Zoom call. Mm-hmm. So the actual person was on the Zoom call while I the asked, person... I asked, oh, yeah. actually, on the last one. <laughs> yeah, I asked to do that. Yeah. But they, it, it didn't, they, you know, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't yeah. I so. said, dicey, dicey. I don't know. <laughs> it's pretty wild to, to be like, uh, actually, you're not me, right? <laughs> but I guess, you know, you want to shut it down, right? If, if someone's out there pretending. Well, they don't want to waste their time. It's just a, it's like, why? You're not even going to hire this guy. You're going to, you know, you're going to report yeah. this guy to LinkedIn or give your recruiter some crap because, you know, the profile that they pulled, it's, it's a duplicate of somebody else. You know, yeah. go look at their GitHub history and see if they actually, uh, worked in on, you know, XYZ projects, you know, yeah. stuff's out and about, you're not going to be able to pull off much nowadays. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, Man. maybe back in the day, but yeah, it feels like everything's so public right. now. Right. Thank you for watching the first half of the professional technical interviewee. The technical interview will be released one week from this episode. So be sure to subscribe to make sure you don't miss it. New episodes are released on the first four Thursdays of each month. Find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And remember, keep practicing.